Well, good morning. Uh, we are honored to have with us uh, this morning a couple of very special guests. Uh, we have uh, on my far left David Neff. Uh, those of you who are readers of Christianity Today, and I know you all are, uh, I, I know I read my copy the minute it hits the mailbox, cover to cover. David recently stepped down as editor of Christianity Today, having served his sentence. Uh, he is uh, also the director of the Robert E. Weber Center for an Ancient Evangelical Future at Northern Seminary. And uh, we have with us as well Dr. Amy Jill Levine. Um, some of you may have remembered uh, her from her uh, lectures at uh, St. Mary's or uh, with the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies. Uh, AJ is the University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies. She is the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of I New have Testament a lot of Studies. Titles. No, 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 I want to do this. Yeah. She is the Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University Divinity School and the College of Arts and Sciences. So all in, in, during, during this, this weekend, we have the big academic uh, biblical studies and theology conferences downtown. So all of these poor graduate students running around looking for jobs, and here A.J. is hoarding them. <laughs> what, uh, John the Baptist, I think, said something about if you have two cloaks and your brother has none, you should give him one. That's true, and yeah. what I do is I hire as, as many uh, graduate students as I can to provide them a living wage. So. There you go, very good. Well, so, so the first question that comes to me then, A.J., is what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like Vanderbilt? Because <laughs> I got a job, and, and we all give thanks for that. Um, I was teaching at Swarthmore College in Philadelphia, and my husband was teaching in Connecticut, and Vanderbilt came after me and said, do you want this job? It's a senior New Testament appointment. And I thought, they're coming after a Jewish woman to teach New Testament in a divinity school to candidates for the Christian ministry in the buckle of the Bible belt. Are you insane? Um, so I said, no. And then they came back and said, do you think your husband might like a job? <laughs> and I said, yes. So my primary job is to train uh, candidates for Christian ministry, people who want to be Christian religious educators uh, in a non-denominational setting, completely across the board, how to read the New Testament. Uh, and my agenda is to make sure that when they read it, the gospel, which is supposed to be a gospel of grace and love and compassion, does not wind up being a gospel of hate and negativity, and particularly so that um, Jesus' Jewish context does not get misunderstood so that we can wind up celebrating the common roots of church and synagogue, as well as actually celebrating the different branches. Well, and, and uh, we, the three of us have gotten to spend a good bit of time together the last several years in D.C. Uh, with the National Jewish Evangelical Dialogue, which uh, David was one of the co-conveners of that. You want to tell us about the genesis of that project, David? It's been five years, and I'm not sure exactly how it got started, but I, <laughs> I think we can blame uh, Chicago's Rabbi Yehiel Pupko uh, for being the spark plug to, to, to get it started originally. And on the evangelical side, uh, Ron Sider and I and uh, Florida megachurch pastor Joel Hunter have functioned as uh, co-conveners, and we've been able to bring together a lot of folk from uh, uh, various institutions as well as, uh, you know, significant pastors who just have a significant interest like you uh, in, the, in the topic. But the reason we've done this is, uh, as my Jewish counterparts have said, you evangelicals have no pope. You have no single address. And so if Jewish leadership wants to get to know evangelical leadership, 
there is no one place to call, no one, you know, and, and so we've had this dialogue now for five years and we've had great representation from various national Jewish organizations as well as great thinkers and scholars like AJ. And, and AJ and I were just talking this morning about how uh, it seems like uh, that that uh, that dialogue has really grown, has, has has flowered, has developed. AJ, you want to say a little bit about that? It was very hard at the beginning because we actually, as Jews and evangelicals, don't quite speak the same language. Um, if you go to a worship service here, it's very, very different than what you would find in an Orthodox synagogue. We don't have musical instruments, and we can't sing on tune. Um, <laughs> uh, and. Well, um, well, you know, you get one out of two. Right, and the band is beautiful. Um, you know, so um, just, to, just to be able to get to know each other as individuals, to talk with each other about what we believe, what we find to be uh, work that we can do in common, social justice concerns, for example, um, where we have strong disagreements and then how we can be friends despite those disagreements, questions about salvation only through the Christ and whether the church should be in the business of evangelizing Jews. Uh, questions about the Middle East and how one looks at what's happening over in, in the land of Israel today, whether we support a greater Israel or a two-state resolution or think that uh, maybe it should just be majority rule, which means a Palestinian Muslim state. Um, how we feel about government involvement in various forms of uh, social justice concerns here. Questions about things like health care, taxation, public education, separation of church and state. And it turns out, and this is what I thought what was going to happen, and every once in a while, like, you're right. Um, it turns out that the evangelicals didn't all agree with each other. We knew the Jews weren't going to agree with each other. <laughs> but that we had much to talk about, and in these conversations, we got to know each other not just as representatives of particular religious traditions, but as individuals. And we found that as the friendships grow, the trust grows, and we're finally, after five years, I think at a point where we can be even more honest about those raw differences that have kept us apart for so many centuries. David, do you want to speak to the way that, that has, uh, those relationships have developed? Uh, just, that, just that they have developed and yeah. that I now know who to call when I've got a, a question. Uh, but that's, that's one of the things, uh, before we ever got this started, uh, I published an article in Christianity Today uh, by a, an evangelical professor at uh, Jordan uh, Evangelical Theological Seminary. Now, probably most people in this room didn't know that there was an evangelical seminary in, in Amman, Jordan, but there is. Um, and uh, he had a particular reading of how the ethics of the Hebrew prophets should inform the ethics of the modern state of Israel. And uh, there's some question as to whether that's a legitimate thing to do, and we can talk about that, uh, because it depends on whether you think the modern state of Israel has theological significance within Judaism, or if we're still waiting for something else to develop that will have theological significance. But that aside, I got, I got a call from uh, Rabbi Pupko, whom I'd never met, and he said, um, can we come out and meet with you? And I said, who's we, you know? <laughs> and it was a delegation of four rabbis and one non-rabbi uh, who's a representative of a um, national Jewish organization. Uh, and they, they came out and sat down with us. But the key message was, before you write about us, talk to us. And that 
is really then, I think, the basis for this dialogue, because uh, while we don't spend all our time talking about Jews and Judaism, uh, we do often enough, I don't mean just we as Christianity Today magazine, but I mean just generally the subject just keeps coming up, and every time we open our Bibles, there's something there that forces us to talk about Jews and Judaism, um, and if we don't talk to living Jews about Judaism today, we don't know what we're talking about. Plus, we're missing out. Yes. We're great friends, and you know, they feed me, which is also good. <laughs> right. Uh, although we, we, uh, we've discovered as we've had these five years of dialogue, we always have to eat Jewish food. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's good, um, but it's good. It's yeah, good. No, it, it, I love pastrami. Yeah. <laughs> no, not so much. I'm fine. I was just thinking bacon's not bad either, but it's not going to fly with some of my Jewish no, friends. No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. More for me. Um, so, uh, so let me let me ask you. Speaking of this this fact that you can't swing a cat in the New Testament without hitting Israel, um, often, of course, that is tied up to a, a an understanding of the story of God working out salvation history. Um, and uh, we throw that word salvation and being saved, uh, we, we'll throw that, that word around here, uh, in, especially in evangelical circles, but uh, oftentimes at, at, the, at the most fundamental level, our communities can have different understandings of that word. So t- tell me, when, when you read Soteria, uh, so, Sozo, what do you, what do you read uh, in, uh, when, you, when you read that word in the scriptures? Yeah, I'm well, sorry, in our scriptures. In your scriptures, because that's a yes, good Greek yes. term. Thank we you. kept the Hebrew, thank you very much. Um, the, um, he, there are major differences in terms of how we understand each other uh, in, our, in our worship life. So when I'm in churches, and I'm in churches a lot, I'm in churches most Sunday mornings and, and Wednesday evenings doing adult Bible study, and if, the, if there's an interesting sermon topic, I'll stay for the sermon. Usually leave before Eucharist, because that gets a little awkward. Um, uh, in Christian churches, I typically hear, we are sinners, we are unworthy, and isn't God stupendous that God could love creatures like us? So it's a fairly negative view of the human condition and an, and an exalted view of God. What one would hear in the synagogue is that exalted view of God, but not so much the negative view of the human condition. And it depends upon where we look in scriptures. The Psalms tell us we're made but a little lower than the angels. We're in the image and likeness of God. We're God's, you know, we're the epitome of creation, right? We're fabulous people, too. Um, and when God has us worship the divine, well, because God really likes fabulous people to worship God. So there's a different sense. I don't come into the synagogue with a sense that I'm a sinner or that I'm unworthy. I mean, I recognize that I do muck up. We all do. But um, we come in with a much more positive sense of, of who humanity is. And consequently, it's, it's very difficult for Jews and Christians even to engage each other in worship because we're coming from different starting positions. In the church, broadly construed, obviously I can't speak for all Christians. They're always going to be outliers. Right? Um, the idea is that when Adam and Eve mucked up in the garden, right? I mean, they really do muck up, um, that that created a breach between humanity and divinity that the Christ resolves. And you can see this in Paul's epistle to the Romans, right? So through one man comes sin and death, and through another man, the Christ comes, comes grace and life. In the synagogue, we don't spend that much time talking about Adam and Eve or the origins of sin. 
Adam and Eve in the scriptures of Israel disappear after Genesis 5. They never show up again. So we're not inclined to think of an irreparable breach between humanity and divinity. Uh, when Adam and Eve mucked up in the garden and they get tossed out of Eden, God goes with them. So God has always been with us. We've always been under covenant with God. And part of the worship is not the sense of we're unworthy, although we sir, everybody is, but isn't this fabulous that we've stayed in this system for so long and we can worship God accordingly? So I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about salvation. I'm under covenant with God. It's, it's all there. My job is to stay in the system and not, not violate this wonderful gift that I've already got. Think about it. This is kind of like marriage or partnership. Um, the reason one does certain things in, in a loving relationship is not to earn the partner's love. You've already got that, right? That came with the ring. Um, it's because that's, that's what you do in response to the love that you've been shown. And you don't do it for the sake of salvation. You do it because that's what love compels you to do. So I don't worry about salvation. I do worry about being a good neighbor, being a good spouse, being a good mom. That's what I worry about. And I hope that Christians don't worry about salvation either once they get past that initial one, one would hope. Yeah, one would hope. But, but I do have a question for you because uh, what you said about the status of human beings in the Hebrew Bible is certainly one side of mm -hmm. that message. When we get to the prophets, you know, the, uh, the Apostle Paul likes to quote this passage, uh, there's no one righteous, not one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, you know, all our, I remember the King James Version that yeah. I grew up on says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah, uh, and charming that, image. And that got, uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to uh, uh, exegete that one too closely. Good. <laughs> but, um, but there is also that kind of message, and especially in the prophets. And whenever I bring up the prophets with my friend Rabbi Pupko, he says, oh, we don't pay much attention to the prophets. It's all, it's, it's all about the Torah. Can <laughs> you explain that to me, why the, Torah, why the prophets don't pay, play a bigger role? Pretty much so. I, I, Pupko's right. Um, now you have two Jews agreeing with each other. This is a minor miracle, so you know, <laughs> count it when it happens. Um, it, because although we, we claim to be sharing the same set of scriptures, what you would call the Old Testaments and what we would call the Tanakh, the Torah or Pentateuch, the prophets, Nevi'im, and the writings, the, the Kitavim, the miscellaneous stuff, we emphasize different parts of that scripture. So the church is inclined to emphasize the prophets, and particularly those prophets uh, which are cited in early Christian literature as, as messianic, so stuff that's leading up to Jesus. Um, the synagogue, we tend to concentrate on the Pentateuch, so that in the synagogue, we will read, in the Orthodox synagogue, we read in Hebrew the entire Pentateuch every year. Um, and in Reformed congregations, it's like on a triennial cycle, so every three years the whole thing gets read. Um, and if you've been in churches that are on the lectionary, are you familiar with what the lectionary is? Lectionary? Okay. So you know, Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm, um, a gospel reading, a psalm, and something from the epistles. Um, so if you go into an Episcopal church or a Roman Catholic church, you know what the reading's going to be anywhere in the world, right? Um, for churches that are on the lectionary, the New Testament is primary, as it should be. That's the primary Christian message. And then the Old Testament passages get picked based on the New Testament, right? So what happens in the synagogue? The Torah reading is primary, and every Torah reading has a reading from the prophets that accompanies. So you're reading more of the prophets. We're reading more of the Pentateuch. 
Um, there's a nice scene in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes into a synagogue and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, right? God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We never hear that in the synagogue. It did not hit the synagogue reading list, right? So even though it's the same Bible, we're emphasizing different parts of it. And even though one might look and say, well, but you Jews have, you know, the prophets. Judaism is not the Old Testament. Judaism is the commentary on the Old Testament. So I've had students who say, well, you know, I can read Leviticus and therefore I know what people in the local synagogue are doing. <laughs> not so much. Right. Um, any more than if I read 1 Corinthians, it doesn't tell me what people are doing here, I hope. <laughs> so we go on. Just one more example of this, because it's a really good example. In the Old Testament, there's a book called the Book of Esther. Right? We give it an entire holiday, and we read the whole scroll of the Book of Esther. In most churches, the only time Esther gets cited is on something like Church Woman United Sunday. And the only verse that gets cited is, you have been chosen for such a time as this, which was the verse that Sarah Palin's pastor read to her right before she decided to run for office. And, and that, that makes it clear why I think in this case the Jews have it right. Don't take verses out of context. Amen. <laughs> Read the whole thing through. Amen to that. I wonder if I can follow up, though, just a little bit. Um, was, there, uh, was there a historical moment early on as... Jesus' followers were, and Jesus himself, latching on to certain passages in the prophets. You mentioned him reading in the synagogue yeah. that day, so obviously he latched onto it and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing, and we know that uh, the writers of the epistles did the same thing, and that often they were quoting from a Greek translation that, we, that was done in North Africa that we call the Septuagint. Um, and uh, I, I know that that fell out of use with the uh, Jewish community very early, even though it was a Jewish product. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, if it was sort of the Christian emphasis on the prophets that may have, you know, at the same time, the rabbis who were gathered up in Tiberias kind of putting together what became Judaism. Was, that a, was there a reaction against Christian use of the prophets? It's possible. We don't know as much about the history. It's a wonderful question. We don't know that much about the history of how the Bible came to be because what we've got is the end product and we don't have people saying, let's sit down and discuss what goes in, what goes out, what version we're supposed to use. Um, although in churches we'll frequently talk about um, uh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, David's right, most of the stuff that gets quoted in the New Testament comes from the Greek. That's where we get things like the virginal conception, because there's no virginal conception in Isaiah in the Hebrew. It's only in the Greek. Um, the canonical order is different. So in your Old Testament, um, the, Old, the Christian Old Testament ends with the prophets, right? So the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. And then, like, like a miracle, you shoot right over into the New Testament. So it's promise fulfillment. The last book in the Tanakh, the Scriptures of Israel, is Second Chronicles, which most people don't read because it's really like First and Second Kings with all the juicy stuff left out. It's very early spin control. Um, and and Second Chronicles ends with the Edict of King Cyrus of Persia telling the Jews in Babylon, go back home and... and, and Rebuild your, rebuild your country that got destroyed. So it's a different canon. Um, the synagogue eventually settled on, let's just use the Hebrew and not use the Greek. But we do know at the end of the first and the beginning of the second century, there were alternative Greek translations because of the version that the church was using. So parts, some Jewish communities said, well, we need a different Greek translation, which doesn't have things like virginal conceptions in it. Um, let's try to, and it's a, two of them come, have come down to us, and they're very, very wooden kind of ooky translations. 
Synagogue eventually says, let's just do the Hebrew. Was it a reaction against the church? Possibly. But there are other reasons for it, one of which was what we today would call multiculturalism. After the Jews had their temple destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans, after the Romans came back in and basically destroyed what was left of the city of Jerusalem in the year 135 in the second revolt against Rome, the Jewish community had to figure out how are we going to be who we are? We're thrown out of Jerusalem. They eventually found their way back in. We're thrown out of Jerusalem. We've lost our temple. We've lost our land. Who are we? So keeping the Hebrew allowed them to retain their own identity. Had they shifted over to the Greek, they may well have simply assimilated into the wider empire. To be Israel means to be a people distinct. How do you keep that distinction? You keep it from the Hebrew. So it may have been part the influence of the growing Gentile church, but I suspect a good much of it was how do we establish our own identity despite pressures to assimilation to get us to cease being Jews? Language is important. Well, that's a, a good lead-in to my next question. Now, you said you didn't want to talk about Paul. No. Yeah. So we're in the middle of Romans. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask... I'm going to, I'm going to read a, a, a verse that, uh, that Paul wrote and ask you what you think Jesus would say about it. How's that? <laughs> okay. All right. This is... Uh, Romans 9, 6, Ugar Pontus Hoy ex Israel, Hutoi Israel, for not all who are of Israel, Israel. or descended from yeah. Israel are Israel. Sure. Uh, that strikes me as highly Jewish. Um, we already have in, in the scriptures of Israel the idea of a remnant. Um, we have the idea of people who were, you know, people who were with the program and people who are not with the program. The people who are not with the program come down to us as sinners, uh, syncretists, and people we don't, we don't want. Um, we have divisions in Israel between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which eventually becomes the Samaritan-Jewish split. Um, and we have people today who will say, all right, well, you, you know, you may be a Jew because your mother's a Jew, but you're, like, you're a really lousy Jew because we complain about each other. Not that Christians have, God forbid you would actually complain about each other, Martin Luther. Um, um, so this strikes me, this is Paul, he's a Jew, he sounds like a Jew, he's complaining. <laughs> but that, um, that remnant theme mm -hmm. is heavy in the prophets. Very much so. And it's heavy in that part of Paul. Um, I have to say, my, um, my Old Testament professor, uh, when I was in seminary, did his dissertation at Vanderbilt on the remnant theme. Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent a lot of time looking at that. And it seems to me that that's a very positive message about, how, about God's faithfulness. Mm -hmm. That is, it may look like the vast bulk of Israel is headed for some kind of bad thing. And, of mm. course, in the, in the prophets, uh, they were. Because they usually they, are, yeah. Because, well, they were being taken into captivity or being wiped out by the Assyrians or, or, or something, you know. But God promises always, there's always going to be a remnant, and mm -hmm. God is going to be faithful to them. And I think the emphasis is on God's faithfulness, not even, not even on the remnant's faithfulness. I, that's, that's a fair way of reading it. And you can, you can move on there to say not all of Israel is Israel, to also say that for Paul, uh, the Gentiles who follow the Christ then become grafted onto Israel, so all of Israel ethnically Jewish. That doesn't sum up who Israel is, because Israel for Paul is this, is this united community where it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek, you're, you're in the system because of what Christ has done for that particular community. So Paul makes perfectly good sense here within a first century Jewish messianic believing environment. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, let me drop another one on you. That was fun. Okay, so what would... So what, I'm okay with that one so far? I'm just saying I'm having a good time. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, would, what would Jesus say about Romans 10.4? Tell us, garnamu Christas es de kaiasunen, panti to pistuante. For Messiah is the goal, the climax, the culmination of Torah for uh, salvation of all who believe. Or for the righteousness of all who believe. Um, or end. Justification, I mean, just tell yeah. Us is just, right, yeah. Just right, end. right. Um, for Paul, every, as I understand Paul, and remember, Second Peter puts it, there's stuff in Paul difficult to understand. So, Amen. Um, uh, for Paul, the Christ is the pivot. So everything has to be focused on that action that the Christ provided. Consequently, and, and the Christ's death has to mean something for everybody. So I think, unlike some, of, some other people who have been doing work in, in Paul and Judaism these days, where it's like the Jews get a buy and Christ is only for the Gentiles, I don't think that works. If Jews got a buy, the Christ didn't have to have died. There could have been some other way of doing it. So everything has to be that, that pivot on the Christ. And for Paul, it's the Christ uh, that restores a broken relationship that exists between humanity and divinity. Um, and it's the beginning of the Messianic age when, when the full restoration is for Paul more or less around the corner. Again, this makes sense to me in a first century Jewish context. If you believe the Messiah has come, that has to make a difference for the world. Fine. The Jewish community said, we don't think the Messiah has come, but, you know, we'll just continue on doing what we're doing, and then Paul has to figure out what to do with the rest of us. Well, I, I want to uh, allow some time, as uh, much as I'd love to monopolize, uh, some time for questions uh, from you all. So, Norm, go ahead. Yeah, um, usually not perfect, but perfected, right? Um, sometimes called the completed Jew, right? Um, and it's a term that we find in some Messianic Jewish congregations to suggest that Jews find their completion, their perfection, their telos, which is the, the, the word in Greek here that Jason cited from, from Romans 10.23, um, that, that Judaism is not quite done until the perfection and the perfection comes about when the Jew accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior. Right? Um, most Jews find that, if they've heard it at all, they find it a somewhat offensive term um, because it suggests to us that somebody on the outside is saying to us, you don't really have it all together, your system is imperfect, uh, come join our group and then you can be perfected. Uh, the first time I heard the word perfected Jew, by the way, was from Ann Coulter, um, whose, whose theology I find, you know, I don't think she went to seminary. Um, <laughs> bless her heart. Um, so it, it becomes a problematic term for us. And what I find more helpful is if the Christian wants to evangelize, and I don't have a problem with Christians evangelizing, um, to do so not in a way to say, this will perfect your religion. In other words, you're wrong and I can fix it. The better means of evangelizing is to say, here's what the Christ has done for me, here's how it manifests in my life, and I'm happy to share this particular good news that I have with you. So instead of telling the Jew what's wrong with Judaism, you tell the Jew what's right with Christianity. And that's the more helpful way of evangelizing. David, did you want to uh, comment? Uh, no, I'll, I'll hang Sorry, back on that okay. one. Sorry, okay, all right. Uh, Carol.
because the world's still mucked up, right? Um, so what the Messiah does in traditional Judaism, right? Not all Jews are messianically inclined, right? But in traditional Judaism, what the Messiah does um, is bring to perfection divine justice, God's creation. In the same way that you believe, you believe, Christians predominantly believe. You people? What? Yeah, you people. <laughs> that Christians predominantly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so Jesus reigns with God, right? Um, but, but the Christian is still praying, your kingdom come, because it hasn't come yet. Um, so the idea is in Judaism, we're still under covenant with God, but the world is not perfected because God's righteousness does not yet reign. So what the Messiah does in Judaism is kind of like what, what the traditional Christian view of the second coming is, right? So when the Messiah comes, you get a messianic age, and then you get things like um, a general resurrection of the dead. Everybody comes back. There's a final judgment. In Judaism, there's an ingathering of the exiles, so all the Jews who are dispersed to foreign lands come back to the national Jewish homeland, land of Israel, um, that there's an end to death and war and disease and poverty. Um, and then the world is perfected, sort of like getting the Garden of Eden back. Right. So think of, think of Jewish messianic hope as much like Christian hope in the second coming. Because in, in the church, the job didn't get fully done the first time. There's more to do. And in the synagogue, the job didn't get done. Right. Between me and you, when the Messiah comes or comes back, your preference, we can say, were you here before? And that becomes the interesting <laughs> question. Right? Um, and if the answer is yes, if the answer is yes, we'll all come over to New Hope right? <laughs> and say, teach us how to do this stuff. Right? Um, and if the answer is no, you can go to the synagogue. We, we will not convert you to Judaism because in Judaism, one does not have to be Jewish in order to be in a right relationship with God, right? But you do have to do some stuff to convert. Uh, yeah, but we don't require yeah. it, yeah. right? Um, I think when the Messiah comes or comes back, if you prefer, she will surprise all of us and then we will stop worrying about this. So what happens in Judaism, even the more mystically inclined, apocalyptically inclined group is, the focus is not on the coming of the Messiah, the focus is on, or on salvation, the focus is on sanctification in the here and now. There's an old Jewish joke that says, there's an old Jewish joke for everything. Um, if, you hear, if you hear the Messiah is, is coming down the road and you're planting a tree, finish planting a tree because at least you'll have a tree. If the Messiah comes, you'll know. Otherwise, you live life as you should be living it. That's right. I was, just the other evening, I was talking about conversion with Rabbi Pupko, and he has... Are you? He, he said, no, I don't need to, he says. No, you don't. I don't need to because my mother's mother and her family uh, fled uh, Russian pogrom in Lithuania. You're a Litvak? Yes. I'm a Litvak. There we go. Oh. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, Vilkovishness. But uh, but 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 he had a, a a couple that was wanting to get married, an interfaith marriage, and the non-Jewish partner wanted to convert. And mm -hmm. he was telling me about all the roadblocks he was putting in Absolutely. that person's way. So even for the sake of marriage, that's not desired. Yeah, um, the traditional view is if you want to convert to Judaism, uh, the rabbi will throw you out three times, um, and then if you come back again, the comment is, "Well, let's study for a while." Well, when can I convert? We'll see. A year, maybe. Two years, we'll see. 
Because the idea is you don't need to be Jewish in order to be in a right relationship with God. And in the second century, when, when the Roman government made conversion to Judaism illegal, the tradition came in, well, we're not going to you know, accept you for conversion back in the second century, because then if it's illegal, you could get into trouble. So the tradition remains, just go be a good Christian. It's good for you. Lovely. And we see that in Acts, don't we? We see all these God-fearers that, mm -hmm. uh, that Paul tries to evangelize. They're in the synagogue. They're in the synagogue. But they're Gentiles. And they like it. Yeah. Look, go to, the, go to the synagogue on Saturday morning. Most synagogues, um, it's a full liturgy. You get lunch and there's no collection. It's the best game in town. <laughs> and they won't try to convert you. <laughs> yes, uh, Steve? It depends upon the Jew that you ask, right? So if you think about Christianity as it comes in different forms, right? Lutherans are not Presbyterians, are not Catholics, are not Greek Orthodox, or, you know, we're not UCC. Um, the, 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 the import of scripture is going to vary depending upon the type of synagogue you're dealing with. But in traditional Judaism, scripture is highly important, which is why it's proclaimed publicly in Hebrew from a scroll every week. Um, the, the rabbinic tradition says that uh, proverbially there are 70 faces to the Torah. In other words, you can take any passage and you should be able to get 70 different readings of it because the word of God infuses this text and then communicates with us in our interpretation and it hits us as individuals and it hits us as community. The rabbis say, and this comes into Judaism as well, that scripture can be read on multiple levels there's the, what's called the Peshat reading, which is the surface reading. There's the moral reading. There's the mystical reading. Um, there's the community reading. There's the personal reading. So scripture still remains the anchor. But the idea of scripture always has to be interpreted because it takes on that meaning when the individual fully engages with it. If we take the idea of Israel as meaning wrestle with God, it's the traditional definition of the term, um, if we take that seriously, one way that we, we engage in that wrestling is we wrestle with the words of Scripture. We struggle to understand it um, for passages we don't like, and there are some we're not real thrilled with. Um, we struggle to make sense of them. We struggle to figure out how a passage dealing with temple sacrifice still might have meaning in our own lives because we don't let it go since there's, there's no more temple, right? So we're continually working it out and engaging text. It is, it is the basis of who we are. Maybe I could just follow up on that. Um, I was reading Romans this morning, and I saw Paul using some passages um, that because I knew what he was quoting, yeah. I said, I don't think, Paul, that that's what that means. Ah. And... The only thing that kind of saves it for me is somewhere along the line I had a professor who gave us several lectures on rabbinic forms of argument and I recognized Paul was doing a very rabbinic kind of use of those scriptures even though I wouldn't read those scriptures that way if he hadn't done it so first. Right, right. Where can people go so that they don't get confused about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. 
Um, there. That's a, that was a setup. Yeah, that was a setup. That was very good. <laughs> I'm, I'm less subtle about it, because you brought it. I didn't tell I, you to I bring didn't, it. No, this is, yeah, there, the, I've been wondering about this. I'll just tell you. I, uh, that's the church's church library's copy of the Jewish annotated New Testament, and I've been going back and forth on whether I want to ask you to sign it. You know, I was I was at a lecture that uh, Jonathan Sachs did uh, in New York this fall, mm -hmm. and somebody had him sign the Siddur, and I'm thinking, uh, is that legit to sign? That? Anyway, it's so an annotated Bible. It's an annotated Bible. So you you're signing the uh, you're signing off on the edit of the annotations. How's That's that? correct. Okay. Um, so the Jewish annotated New Testament, which uh, three years out of my life to put this together, 50, 51 separate Jewish commentators talking about every single book in the New Testament and 31 back essays on things like what was the temple, how was Jewish law practiced, what is the synagogue, uh, what did Jews think about life after death, it remains a, a popular topic, um, what did Jews think about the Messianic age and all that. So 51 Jewish commentators showing enough, not just respect, but love for this material that they spend their lives working on it, saying it's about time Jews and Christians start studying with each other. When it comes to Paul, Paul's doing a very, very Jewish form of scriptural reading in antiquity. Could you lift verses out of context and make them mean something that they would not have meant in their original context? Sure. Today, we call that proof texting. Back then, it was called standard way of reading the text. Right. Um, could you allegorize it? Sure. And the rabbis will even play with words. In Judaism, all letters, like A, B, C, D, have numerical equivalents. It's like Jewish numerology. So you can say this word adds up to this, and so does that word, so let's substitute. In, it's an, you can, there are computer programs where you can do this today. Um, uh, in, if you go to a synagogue and you look at a scroll of Torah, it's only consonants, no vowels. And if that seems odd to you, think about text messaging. right? So we can read this stuff, um, but the rabbis will say, and we know what the vowels should be, but every once in a while they'll say, don't read it this way, read it that way, because the words, the consonants can manage a double reading. Right? Uh, the word for builders has the same letters as the word for children. So, you know, who builds you up? Obviously, your children. Right? So are they playing with the text? It's a joyful play. It's a really highly informed play, and it, it just opens up the text to multiple meanings. And what keeps them from going off the deep end, because, boy, you can go off the deep end with this sort of play, they're reading in community. So as long as the reading that you come up with makes sense to the community as a whole, it stays there. And that's how important God's word is, is it opens up to multiple interpretations. Paul is, Paul is in effect, playing that same game, and it is the game for the highest stakes in the world, which is how do you know what God wants you to do? It's brilliant. So would Paul get an A today? No, I'd have flunked him. But, <laughs> but that's because today we have different ways of reading Scripture. Yeah. Well, we are, we are out of time, and I uh, want to thank you all uh, for being so attentive. And I thank A.J. and David for coming. Will you please uh, give them a hand? Thank you. By, uh, by, by, way of, by, way of further, by way of further thanks, we have, uh, we have lovely parting gifts uh, one of them is uh, is a, uh, a nice bottle of wine, enjoying good health. Isn't that's that's Brilliant. this year's uh, Zin, 
uh, from Acorn. Uh, and we also have a book. This is written by a woman named Hannah Miley, whom uh, New Hope has been supporting through Antioch Network. Uh, she's a Holocaust survivor herself and has been active in reconciliation work uh, in, uh, in her uh, home region of the Eiffel in Germany. So this is in here. And it, it is all given to you in this coveted uh, Evangelical Theological Society tote bag that, uh, that this year... Uh, I'm deeply impressed. They they did in Ravens colors, being here in Baltimore. So, enjoying. Thank you both so much. Thank you.